exciting day here at our church, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Some of you might look around and feel like it's a little bit thinner in, in the ranks here, and part of that is it's August, and there, there's still families trying to, to finish out their, their time up in Flag or Payson or whatever, but there's another reason it's a little bit thinner today, and that is that we started, if you might remember, this last winter, a, a service during this service called The Venue. And so they meet over in our high school room. It's, it's a video venue, but it's all live as far as having their own pastor and having their own worship and announcements and community. And then the message right now is being piped into them. So give it up for The Venue over there in our uh, thing. Welcome, guys. Good. But it's also thinner in our ranks here this morning because as we've been talking about multi-site for the last year, the fact that we've uh, secured some land over at Cactus and 25th Place and we're going to be starting a, another campus there in September, all the people that are involved in that uh, are, are for the next few weeks all throughout August here meeting in our town center. So there is right now an entire group of your brothers and sisters in the town center that are preparing for our multi-site launch. And so Rick, their pastor, is over there them, they're with them right now. They've just had their worship time. And they're also live with us in the town center. So welcome, Cactus Campus. We're really glad to have you with us. And, and I got to tell you, what I'm so excited about the Cactus Campus is, and I, and I don't think some of us have quite understood this completely yet, but we're not just, uh, you know, transplanting a bunch of our people over there to kind of pull the relief valve on, on overcrowding here or anything like that. We are strategically taking a portion of our congregation and placing them in a 15 to 20 minute drive so that we can bring church to those who aren't coming to church. Kind of our motto is, if they won't come to us, we'll bring church to them. And Rick gets that, and his core team get that. And so they're not going there just to have fun and eat ice cream and, 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 and have a nice building and, and do church. They're going there to reach that community for Jesus Christ. Amen? And, and they're doing that as Scottsdale Bible Church. This is different from a church plant. This is still Scottsdale Bible Church. We're just starting a new campus. So the same teaching will be done over there. It'll be done via video, live. Uh, but everything else will be uh, personal and organic. They'll have their own pastor and, and, and staff and ministries. But it'll be done the way it's done here primarily at Scottsdale Bible Church. Same church, just a different location. So some of you in the coming uh, weeks and months might want to also check it out on the odd Sunday, especially if you live over there and you're running late. So you might want to just say, hey, we got a Cactus Campus. It's a, a, right next to ACU, uh, Arizona Christian University and stop by there. But we are so excited about what is happening uh, over there. The, the, pray for the building. We, as you know, we, uh, we took a, an Episcopalian church that had shut down about a year, a year ago and secured it through the, the archdiocese there. And we have been rehabbing this church. It needed a lot of work. And I went there this week and I thought, you know, the last Sunday or sept late September is our launch date. And I thought, yikes we got a long way to go. So pray that that gets done by then. We started a new series last Sunday on, uh, called I Am, and it's simply on identity, on our identity as those made in the image of God, our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. If you don't get it, you'll get it as we go along today, and, and it's a great series out of the book of Romans. So would you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, it's exciting to see a lot of stuff going on in our body, in our congregation here 
Uh, Lord, there's always a, a buzz and excitement over in our venue, uh, Lord, and now there's a buzz and excitement in the town center as we anticipate joyfully and with a lot of excitement the, uh, the multi-site, the Cactus Campus, that'll be starting here in just a few weeks. And so, God, we pray that you continue to bless them, bless Rick and his team and all the leaders and the people over there, Lord. May you continue to, to raise the excitement and joy that they have and prepare them, Lord, for the significant work that you're going to allow them to be a part of by the power of your Spirit uh, over in North Phoenix. Father, I, I pray that uh, as we are, who are still here would just continue to feel, Lord, very close with them as our brothers and sisters in Christ and continue to support them through prayer. As we turn to your word, Father, right now we pray that you speak to our hearts and our minds. Uh, by the power of your spirit, may we understand rightly what you have revealed and apply it diligently to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, America is a weird country in the sense that ever since the founding of our country, we have been an identity-laden country. But we have. But one thing you can say about Americans, amidst all the good and the bad, is that we knew our identity very early on as a country, and we've continued on with that. I mean, we were founded on, on kind of rebelling against and leaving Great Britain or, or, or England. And, and ever since then, we've been forging an identity, a pioneering identity, as a country. And one of the blessings in that is that that means for those of us who have been born here in the United States is that we've been born into an environment where we're taught that it's a good thing to pursue some markers for your identity. It's good to ask yourself the question, who am I and what makes up my personhood? Who am I and what is it that makes me tick? For the purposes of this series, it's good to fill in the blank when it comes to that statement, I am, that you see there on the screen. And that's the question I want you to wrestle with right now, that if you and I were having a cup of coffee, and I said to you, fill in the blank for your life, give me your core identity by telling me who you are, say I am, and then fill in the blank. And again, for Americans who are really good at this, we have no end to the list of culturally entrenched descriptors that fill in the blanks on I am. If you and I are having a cup of coffee, you might begin by saying, well, I'm a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer or a business person. You might get more relational and say, no, I am a father or a mother or a sister or a brother. I am a good friend to those around me. You might tell me a little bit about your personality. You might say, I'm an introvert or an extrovert, an outgoing person or a shy person. You might get all political on me and tell you, you know what, Jamie, it's important for you to know I am a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, or whatever it is for you. Uh, you might start telling me about your hobbies. I'm really good at this. You might tell me about your relational past. I am divorced. I am married. I am currently single. Uh, you might tell me about your religion. I'm religious or not very religious. You might even tell me a little bit about how you come across to others. You might say, I am goofy and fun-loving, or I'm serious and, quite frankly, boring. On and on. You would have no list, or end of the list of descriptors for you to tell me about yourself. It's one of the great things about growing up in this country is that we're really good at trying to get to our identity. We have a lot of things we could fill, fill in the blanks when it comes to I am. And yet, God comes along in his word, the Bible, 66 books that make up his word, and believe it or not, he also has a list 
of descriptors that he wants us to use in filling in the blanks on I am. And it has nothing to do with our temperament or our political persuasion or even our relational base. No, God, who flies at 40,000 feet, figuratively speaking, and sees all the big picture, has a list of descriptors that take us deeper. He has a list of descriptors that doesn't just stop at what you do or what your bank account is or what your relational history is, as important as all of that might be. No, God says, I have a list of descriptors that you can fill in the blanks with when it comes to I am that will truly help you get to the core of your identity of who I made you to be, who you've become through lots of experiences that you have had, and who I want you to be in my son, Jesus Christ. Truly, the Bible is a book of identity. It's a book on helping you and I discover our identity as human beings, creations of Almighty God. And so we began last week, we're using the book of Romans to guide us in this, uh, taking a look at the first identity marker that God lives us, and we filled in the blank like this. We said, I am an image bearer, an image bearer. That's the first thing that Romans teaches us, the New Testament book of Romans, that ever since the creation of the world, Romans 1.20, we have been made in the image of Almighty God. And we started on a very, very good note. But we asked the question, what is it that makes you and I so very different from the animal kingdom and from all other creation around us? How is it that we know that we know? How is it that we can seek meaning and purpose on a subjective and spiritual level? How is it that we can have a feeling base that goes deeper than anything else in all of creation? How is it that we can be altruistic and self-sacrificial even other-centered in all that we do. Where does all of that come from? Is that just genetic engineering, or could there be a master design behind it? And we noted that the Bible says it's master design, that God has his stamp, his image, on human beings, and that's what makes us so incredibly unique. I am an image bearer, valued, loved, made in the image of God. And this forms the first identity statement in this series. Now, as most of us have also learned in life, however, with the good comes the, finish it with me, bad, right? With the good comes the bad. And that should tip us off to something more to our identity, by the way. The mere fact that all of us are familiar with the fact that when there are good things in our life, though that's a good thing, there's also going to conversely be some bad things. And isn't it interesting that as you read through the Bible, from Genesis to Romans to Revelation, it consistently affirms that we are image bearers and that that's good, but then right on the coattails of this, it also affirms a second thing about us, something that most don't like to talk about in polite society, but it's actually very life-giving because it gets to our core reality and identity, and it helps us to find life in the end. You'll see what I mean as we go along. And so in defining this core reality, we would say it like this, that all image bearers are likewise fallen, fallen into a condition of ingrained sinfulness. I've chosen each word there very carefully. All image bearers are fallen. That's why we're going to affirm the statement, I am fallen. Fallen into a condition of ingrained sinfulness. 
This is where the biblical worldview, folks, clearly and unambiguously answers the question, what's wrong with this world? And by extension, what's wrong with us? And it says that if you can humble yourself and affirm the statement, I am fallen, you're now halfway home when it comes to your identity. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want to move ahead a couple of chapters in Romans to chapter 3. We're going to skip around a little bit in this series. We're going to come back to chapters 1 and 2 in the coming weeks in a substantive way. But for today's purposes, I want you to go to chapter 3. And I want to look at just one verse out of chapter 3 and then one verse in a few minutes out of chapter 6. Verses that many of you might be familiar with because they're kind of core verses to the Christian gospel. But I want to flesh them out a little bit deeper today. Romans 3 verse 23 And let's read what it says about human beings and what has happened to us. It's very short, but very power-packed. And it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, almost surely you have heard this passage before, but let's break it down and understand the logic of what is being said here. So notice first, just those first four words, for all have sinned, all have sinned. Now that word sin here is the Greek word, is the Greek word hemarton, and it literally means to do wrong, to fail, to miss the mark. It carries with it the idea that you were aiming at something like a runner, this is the Olympics week, like a runner aiming for the finish line, but you didn't quite make it. You veered off course. You didn't finish the race. You didn't get to the finish line. Don't miss this. This is very important. It's not saying that you just didn't earn a medal, like you came in eighth place or something like that and just didn't finish very strong. This word literally means you didn't finish at all, that you fell very short, that that, that you sinned and you missed the mark. And so in using this word sin in Romans 3 here, it's telling us that all of humanity... This same humanity that started out as perfect image bearers has veered off course, having not lived up to what it means to be in the wonderful image of Almighty God. We have fallen, fallen from the wonderful heights of what God originally intended us to be as those made in His image. You know, I believe the great Protestant Reformation of 500 years ago nailed it. But when folks coming out of the Reformation started to use a phrase to describe our fallenness that was very accurate, and the phrase was total depravity. Total depravity. And though there's some debate on what this phrase total depravity means, even debate among reform-minded scholars, the essence of what most are getting at when they use this phrase is that at the very least, each and every faculty of a human being his mind, his heart, and his will, so what one thinks, what one feels, and and, and what one does, are now depraved, and completely so when it comes to doing anything that might please Almighty God in an eternal way. That's what the word total, or phrase total depravity means. I like how Mark Driscoll, pastor at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, says it so very simply and clearly. Look up here on the screen. He says, sin has totally affected the totality of our person. That's depravity. Sin has totally affected the totality of our person. 
And to be sure, again, all of us would admit that we think things that we know are not right. You willing to admit that today? All of you are willing to admit you feel things that you know are not right. At times, even borderline hatred for those around you. And there's other times where you know you do things that you know are not right. And though we live in a world today that doesn't like the word sin, we live in a world today that tries to soften this thing and say, well, we all make mistakes and nobody's perfect and we all fall a little short and all that. The Bible's just being really honest with you here and saying, no, there's a significant problem with this created humanity that God loves and the culprit is sin. And it's infected all of us. We miss the mark. So as Paul the Apostle would say when he was wrestling with this in his own life later on in Romans 7, he says, For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, I end up doing. And he says, what kind of person am I? All have sinned, all have all suffered the, the disease of depravity in our lives. We are image bearers who have fallen. If you're still unconvinced, and even to see this more deeply, look at the second line of logic that Romans 3.23 uses to show us this, when it says even further that not just do we have sinned, but then it fills in the gaps by saying that we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the glory of God. About a year ago, I think it was, I did a, a whole sermon on the glory of God here, and I defined for you what God's glory is. And if you remember, I define God's glory very biblically as anything that emanates from Him, that shines forth from Him, that He lets us see or know about Himself. So the fact that God is all good, all knowing, all wise, all merciful, all powerful, those are all things that make up His glory. Glory is anything that emanates from God. It's His presence that forms or that stems from Him. And so it's saying here that you and I, as image bearers, have now fallen short of his glory. Again, going back to that running illustration, we, we haven't crossed the finish line. That you got God's glory up here and a bunch of human beings down here. And God originally intended us, as image bearers, to be ones who mirror his glory. You can read Genesis 1 and 2 to see that. As ones whom all of creation would look at and go, whoa! God is like that? They look at human beings and go, God is, is like, that's really good. That's what God is like. He made us to be ones who, who mirror his glory. But he says now, as a result of the fall, all human beings fall short of his glory. God made us to reflect his glory, and we are now ones who at times don't reflect it very much at all. And here's the real rub for most of us that think in kind of a Western way. I don't mean Western United States, Western part of the world, Americans and Europeans. And that is that we tend to focus on the differences among us as human beings, where God tends to see all of us lumped together from sort of a bird's eye perspective. What do I mean by that? See, one of the things I think is a problem for us when we have any discussion on sin or fallenness is that we tend to be very comparative to those around us, whereas if we're reading Romans 3.23 part B here correctly, God's main concern is that all of us fall short. Our main concern is, I hope I'm a little bit better 
than my neighbor. And that's the way that most of us tend to think. And it robs us of this core reality. And so we tend to focus on the subtle and even at times not so subtle differences between us and those around us. So we compare, say, Billy Graham with Mick Jagger, and we say, my gosh, isn't there like a huge difference between them? And as long as I'm a little bit closer to Billy Graham, then I guess I must be doing pretty well. But from God's view, what you need to see is that though he does see those differences, he further sees the one big elephant in the room, and that is that though there might be subtle differences between us, we all have one thing in common, we fall short. So God's measuring stick for our lives is not the differences between us or any elements of his creation. No, his measuring stick is only and always his glory. And once we see that, we see then how all of us are fallen. I, I put a, a, a ladder up here on the stage here to try to illustrate this in a way that we can, can visualize this, because this is a really important point that Romans is making. So as you look at this ladder here, I simply want you to pretend that this ladder is sort of the full scale of morality, goodness, being, purpose, meaning, uh, of all of known and unknown reality. And at the very top of this ladder, we obviously have God. God would be at the top of it. God is in all. He is all. He is before all. Uh, God is outside of all. And so God is the pinnacle of all that there is. And then below God, you would have all varying degrees of, of morality and, and the way that we have fallen. And so I started to think, like, you know, if you had to put something at the opposite of God, at the way bottom of the scale, certainly you'd pick Satan from the Bible. But if you had to pick some, some human being, you'd probably be tempted to pick somebody like Adolf Hitler, right? Is that fair to do? So, so you think of like the, the worst person in all of history, you'd think of Mussolini, Stalin, Attila the Hun, and Adolf Hitler. And, and so if you and I had to put this on a scale, we'd say God is up here, and like one of the lowest parts of all of humanity would be Hitler. But then tell me if this isn't true. What we tend to do in our thinking then is we say, well, who would be then kind of like one of the greatest human beings that ever lived? Who'd be like one of the most moral people that ever lived? And you'd probably land maybe on Billy Graham, right? I mean, Billy Graham, it's hard to argue with Billy Graham. He's really moral. He's very spiritual. He's preached the gospel to more people than anybody in the history of the world. He's got impeccable integrity. I mean, he's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And so if we had to put it on a scale, we might say, let's not put him like right under God, that'd be heresy, but we might say that Billy Graham, you know, maybe makes it halfway up the scale there. And, and that Billy Graham is pretty high up when it comes to human beings. So now you got God, and you got Hitler, and you got Billy Graham. And here's where it really gets interesting. Because what you and I do in our lives then is we start placing anybody and everybody we know somewhere on this scale. So, so that shock jock, Howard Stern, we might place him <laughs> just a little bit above Adolf Hitler, right? 
I mean, the guy is admittedly decadent. I mean, just decadent. He just puts it in your face, and it just offends everybody and everybody. So we might say, you know what, Howard? You know, you're not Hitler, thank goodness, but, you know, you're not much better than that. And then what we do is we say, you know what? I got to tell you, my neighbor throws a lot of parties. I mean, my neighbor is just, you know, and when I'm leaving for church on Sunday, the guy is snoozing and he's never going to church. And I hear he's struggling with his wife. And so, you know, my poor neighbor, I mean, again, he's not Howard Stern, but he probably listens to Howard Stern. So I'm going to put him like maybe right about there. And then you got this co-worker right at work, you know, that, oh, my gosh, their life's a mess, and they're a gossip. And so, you know, your co-worker's not quite as bad as your neighbor, but you'd be tempted to put your co-worker right about there. And here's where it really comes to a head. Then you say, and I am right about here. <laughs> right? That's what we do, especially as church people. Well, now, 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 now let's put this together because this is very interesting. All of a sudden now we have this gradated scale here of all different kinds of morality and goodness and relationality and all of that built upon our value system. And we'd never want to say we're Billy Graham because that would be an awfully high bar to have to live up to. But, but we do say that we're better than our neighbor, better than our coworker, certainly not Howard Stern, and that, you know what, we're doing pretty good. And as soon as you start thinking like that, what you start then to think to yourself is that, you know what, God's got to take this into account, right? I mean, come on! I, I mean, on that judgment day when I go and die and I be feared for God, he's got to take into account that I'm not Howard Stern. I'm not my neighbor. I'm not that nasty co-worker. Not Billy Graham either or Mother Teresa. But hey, I'm doing pretty good. I know a lot of church people who tend to think like this, but here's what you need to realize, and that is that God, who is way up here, is looking down, and he sees something very different than you and I do. He, he sees the difference between you and your coworker. He's, he obviously gets that. He certainly sees the difference between you and Adolf Hitler, and he knows that there's a difference in you and Billy Graham. But he also sees all the Velcro between everybody and him. And he says, you all have one thing in common. And that is that you all fall short. You might tout the differences between you, and they are real. But when it comes to your relationship with me, when it comes to any of you in your core identity coming out of the womb and being able to connect with me, we'll see why you can't in a minute, He's saying, you fall short. And all of humanity, that's why this visual is so powerful, all of you are lumped together as one. All of you fall short. And that's what Romans is trying to get at here for you and I. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason that that is so important, folks, is because once we get this, we're ready for the result of this equation. And the result is point two this morning. And the result is that our fallen nature separates us from God, others, and even ourselves. It separates us. That's why this chasm is here between God, others, and even ourselves. I I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning for time's sake, but... 
This is one truth that I find most people, almost everybody, at some point in their life is willing to admit that sin, when it is a part of our life, fallenness, definitely separates it, our, us from others when it rears its ugly head. And so Romans 6.23 says it this way, for the wages of sin is death, separation. The wages of sin is death. It's fascinating, that word wages there is probably one of the most well-chosen words you could ever choose for this argument. That word wages there back then means exactly what it means today. It means that which you have earned. So it was used back then in a business context to simply refer to that if somebody worked for you, they have earned a certain wage, you better pay it to them. That's what it meant. So today when you work, you get a paycheck. Or I like this image better. When you work today, you get automatic deposit. So if you do work today, something's going to automatically be deposited to your account. And what it's saying there is that when you and I engage in any kind of sin, when our fallenness ever peeks its head out of the hole, there's a wage for that. You're going to get paid for that. And the wage is death. And the death that it's talking about, let's not be simplistic here, the death that it's talking about is everything from physical death to relational death to internal personality death to soul death, all kinds of death. It's lumping it all together here. Obviously, we all know that if we abuse our bodies and sin with our bodies, there is a chance your body will stop working. Red Fox, remember him, Sanford and Son, uh, the great comedian? Red Fox at one time joked one of his stand-up routines. He said, at least when I die, I'll know why. And he's referring to the fact that he abused his body most of his life with alcohol and all his other stuff. And isn't interesting that at the age of 68, he up and finally had that big one. I'm coming to see you, Elizabeth. He had that, that big one, and, and he died. Well, if you abuse your body, there's a good chance you'll die. If you abuse a relationship, there's a good chance that death will come to that relationship. Divorce, abuse, friendships that get, get, get ruined for years. If you abuse your own emotions and your thoughts by getting into pornography or a habit of lying or cheating or whatever it is for you, that you're going to experience some inner turmoil that will feel like death to you. Shame, alienation, frustration, confusion. And, 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 if, you, and if you show your fallenness at all with Almighty God, and we all do, who of us haven't experienced a soul death in which we feel separated from Almighty God? Truly, it is right. The wages of sin is death. And we've all learned this in life. And though this is obviously difficult, if not awkward at times, to talk about, we need to wrestle with this. Because there's not one of us here today, not one of you over in our multi-site or in our venue, that hasn't had the experience of some kind of death as a result of your own fallenness or somebody else's fallenness. Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest Christian philosophers of the 20th century, once made the comment that when we fell into sin, we lost contact with our three most vital relationships, with God, others, and ourselves. And he's right. It was fracturing time for humanity. And it plays itself out every day in hundreds of scenarios. If you come home and lose it with your spouse, there's going to be separation. If you take your anger, especially your residual anger that's been with you for years, and you pour it on your teenage kid, 
The door is going to be shut and loud music is going to be playing. There's going to be separation. If you gossip about a coworker at work and he or she finds out, because they always do, there's going to be a relational rift, separation, maybe even death of the relationship. If you never confess your colossal blunders to those around you, to God or anybody else, but hold it in all of your life, there's a good chance you're going to be angry and depressed. The list is endless. To experiences of separation that we each have gone through due to our own sin or somebody else, and it's death. That's what Romans 6 is saying here. It's death. And who of us have never experienced that with God? Now, when I'm sharing my faith with people, I love to ask people, you know, when I'm trying to explain this idea of our need for forgiveness because of sin, I say to them, you know, when you came out of the womb and you started to become conscious of yourself, did you immediately at that moment say, my gosh, I'm a wonderful creation of God. Praise you, God, for life. Or did you get pretty self-satisfied, pretty self-centered, and kind of go on your way at the age of two? And we all know the answer to that. That there's something in us that from the womb feels and felt a distance from God. And as the guy who led me to Christ used to say years ago, he used to say, if God feels farther away, who moved? And the answer is obviously not God. It's us. And we all feel this distance from God. Please know, the result of an image bearer who has fallen is separation. And it's something we need to contend with. And yet contend with God has. And the Bible ends always in a discussion of our sinfulness on a positive note. Because, folks, if the reality is that we are image bearers who have fallen, and if the result is separation from our three most vital relationships, then the answer you're going to love. Because the answer brings us back into the realm of life. And the answer to fallenness is forgiveness. The answer, the Bible says, to our fallenness is forgiveness. Look one last time at how Romans says this. Look at the latter half of 6.23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow! Let that sink in a minute. There's, There's a play on ideas here. The wages, the things that you've earned from sin is death. But then it goes on to say that for those of us who embrace Jesus Christ and his offer of forgiveness, we now get something we haven't earned, a free gift, and it's eternal life. So in the first scenario, you get what you deserve. In the second scenario, you get what you don't deserve, the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says God made you, and he loves you. You're an image bearer made in his image, but you have fallen. And he could have left us there, but he decided not to. The core of the gospel is the fact that we are now forgiven in Jesus Christ because of Jesus' death on a cross for our sin. God has offered forgiveness to all of his humanity if they will but embrace Jesus Christ. If they will accept him as Lord and Savior, and his work on the cross in their place, he says you will find forgiveness for your soul, and then and only then can you maybe become a better person. And what is so incredibly challenging here, folks, is that when you think about it philosophically, most of us would have never guessed it would be this way. We wouldn't have guessed it this way. And even still now, many Christians tend to live more of a I have to prove myself to God kind of faith rather than 
simply receiving and banking on Christ's work on the cross and our faith that releases his forgiveness. Or to put it more in a linear form, look up here on the screen. Here are the two choices before us. You can choose the Romans road, the Romans pathway here, in which you lean on Christ, experience his forgiveness and reconciliation to God Almighty based on what Christ did for you, and therefore experience eternal life starting right now, because you get life right now, or you can continue to work hard, trying as hard as you can to nudge yourself up and up this scale so that maybe you could get just a centimeter below Billy Graham and then prove yourself to God and hope that he gets it. Hope that he says, okay, you're in. But if you and I are reading the Bible right, and I think we are, even if you could show me that you're just as moral and up there as Billy Graham, you still got a long way to go to God. And that's why even Billy Graham, the gospel he preaches, says, I am fallen. I am a sinner who needs grace. I am somebody who needs the forgiveness of God. And that forgiveness is only going to come through what Jesus Christ did for me. People have said to me for years, ever since I became a Christian, why are you guys so rabid about Jesus? Why can't you just talk about God? It'd be so much more peaceful if you just talked about God. Why do you always have to bring Jesus into the equation? And when anybody asks that question, they obviously don't get the gospel. Because without Jesus, without the second person of the Trinity coming to this earth and being our sin bearer, let that image burn on your brain. We were made as image bearers, but we now need a sin bearer, somebody to forgive us in order to be brought to God. Without Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no dealing with the fall. There is no reconciliation with God. And so only in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, are you going to find the life that you're looking for. And get this, folks. This we have to wrestle with as we wrap this up. It's only through faith in Jesus that you secure your salvation. And that's what scares me about many of you. There are times, and as I've been your pastor for the last five years, that I've asked you guys questions individually on a regular basis where I've said, even if you've been a Christian and you go to church and you attend Bible study, you serve at neighborhood ministries and you tithe 10 on the gross and do all the things that you think are the right things to do, I've, I've asked people, well, you know, if you were to die today... Why would God allow you into heaven? Why would he say you're in? And I can't tell you how many times I've heard good church-going folks say, well, I've been here 42 out of 52 Sundays, and I serve with my gifts and passions, and I give. And then I hear this all the time, and I got a really good heart, and I try hard. And I go, wow, if it's possible, you just gave the absolute wrong answer. If it's possible, you've been engaging in an adventure in missing the point. That what God says is, is that if you're ever tempted to say that the reason he would accept you is because of anything that you have done to prove yourself to him, you don't get the gospel. And quite frankly, I wonder if you're saved. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just reality time, folks. Those who are saved, those who know that they have eternal life, don't bank on anything they have done except their receiving of what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. 
The gospel is you saying to God, I am fallen, and I'm so short of your glory that there's nothing I can do. There's too much Velcro. There's nothing I can do, God, to climb the ladder anymore. I've tried that game long enough. And God comes along and says, my son, my daughter, you're spot on right. I love you. And that's why I gave you Jesus. Lean on him. Accept him. Make him your Lord and Savior because it's through his provision that I now accept you. It's through him that I now see you. And it's through him that, that you're going to gain entrance into my kingdom. That, that's so clear in the New Testament that it's all about Jesus. And so out throughout this whole series, as we go through each leg of what Romans teaches us about our identity, I, I'm going to give us a chance to receive Christ each week. This is going to be a great outreach, evangelistic, whatever words you might use, series for us as a church. But today I want to do kind of something different. I'm not going to do an altar call, though we're going to probably do the one of those in a few weeks. I'm not going to have every head bowed and raise hands and fill out cards, though we might do some of that stuff. Today I want us all to bow in prayer as we close our service today in multi-site venue. I want us to bow in prayer. And I want to pray a prayer for me, for you, that is a prayer of receiving what Jesus Christ has done for us. And maybe for some of you, this will be the first time that you pray this prayer. Maybe for some of you, you've banked on so much of your own ingenuity, your own works, kind of mixed in with Jesus. This is where it gets really hard. You've kind of mixed Jesus and your good works, and, and, and you think that you're saved, but you're not. Until you bank fully on Jesus and his provision, you're not assured of eternal life. Today, I want to help you be assured. Would you bow with me and pray? Father, I know for me 31 years ago when somebody explained to me this gospel with clarity that we have done today, that it's not about me, it's not about my good works or lack of good works, but it's about what Jesus has done for me. God, the light went out of my head and I said, that makes sense, that I can accept, him I can accept. And I thank you, Lord, that on March 11th, 1981, I prayed a prayer similar to what we're going to pray right now in receiving Jesus Christ. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there are some really good-hearted people here today that really are more moral than their neighbor, their co-worker, certainly some of the celebrities that we have around us. But Lord, maybe for the first time they're seeing that they have a long way to go to your glory. And they'll never make it. They'll never make it unless they claim the work of Jesus and his provision for them on the cross and his sinless life. And so, Lord, we would pray it like this. We would say, thank you, God, for revealing to us that we're fallen. It's a hard thing to admit when we know it's the first step toward life. Thank you for revealing to us our true nature. And, Lord, we realize that in our fallenness there is no way that on our own, even with a little help, that we could get all the way up to your glory. But we know that's the standard as image bearers. And Lord, we know that the provision of Jesus Christ has been given for us. And God, we thank you for him. We thank you that he is the one who paid the penalty for our sin. He is the one that bore our sin on the cross. He is the one who lived the sinless, perfect life. He is the one who rose from the dead and conquered death in the grave. He is the one who ascended into heaven so that we might be guaranteed of heaven. And so, God, from first to last, we rely upon him. We claim no merit on our own. We will stop striving and trying to prove ourselves to you. We will receive your love. 
receive your grace through Jesus Christ and only him. Thank you, God, for such a wonderful pathway. We receive your son, Jesus, now with joy and with great expectation. Fill us with your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and matchless name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you.